There's an uneasiness growing within today's parents. Questions arise around what our kids are being taught, exposed to, and influenced by. Thankfully, a fully engaged, well-informed parent is a powerful thing. And that's why I support Answers in Genesis, and I would recommend you do as well, because it's important to remember that the battle for our kids' minds isn't one in the courts or the classrooms. It's one from the safety and comfort of our own home. So be the difference our kids need and visit www.answers.gift today. Finding God in Those Mundane Moments. This is Episode 78 of En Route. Welcome to Enroute, the podcast at the intersection of church and Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Well, I think it's good to take a break from all of the talk about war and uh, lately fear of nuclear war um, to hear a conversation with Corey Nathan. Um, this was recorded about a week and a half ago, um, and we had a wide ranging conversation on theology and culture and life in general. Um, it's a little bit different than recent interviews. Most of those have always had a specific focus on an issue. Instead, this is much more of a free-flowing conversation about faith, civility, respect, and gratitude. Um, Corey hails originally from New Jersey, uh, where he grew up an observant Jew. In his mid-20s, he became a uh, Christian, much to the chagrin of his family. Um, he basically became part of um, American evangelicalism. And it was while he was in that milieu that he really understood the shortcomings of evangelicalism and how sometimes scripture conflicted with some of its cultural positions. He has a diverse background, probably one that I've never seen before, um, from being a stockbroker to uh, a headhunter to the head of a uh, theater and film ministry and so much more. One of the things that he does this day, these days is that he is the co-host of a popular podcast, How to Talk About Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, which in the in this day and age, I seem to be a very apt uh, topic or to be uh, chatting about. Uh, he lives in Los Angeles with his wife, Lisa, and three children. So let's listen to this conversation with Corey Nathan. Good to talk to you, Corey. I've um, heard a lot about you. I've heard the podcast, and um, so I'm great to be able to talk with you for an hour about life and politics and all of this stuff. So, yeah, no, I've been listening to your podcast, and uh, I just I really appreciate some of the conversations you have. The uh, 
I'm always enlightened. You know, I, I also appreciate how you bring in folks with different points of view. And, and oftentimes we think there's only two points of view. So even within certain subjects, it's good to understand, you know, nuance within those subjects. I, I really appreciate how you bring on a, a real, uh, a nice array of guests. So that's, uh, it's been helpful for me. Yeah. And I think the other, I think for me, the cool thing is, you know, you brought up nuance and you talk about that on your, your podcast and that, is something I think that that is missing in our culture more and more. We don't have nuance. Everything is is very much black or white, very simple. And yeah. life is not that way. I mean, it's it's never been that way. And nuance makes it hell of a lot more interesting. <laughs> it sure does. It sure does. Yeah, I was talking with a fella just about any given issue. You know, we could just say. I'm pro-gun, I'm anti-gun, I'm, you know, pro-abortion, I'm anti, but it just doesn't work that way. You know, even folks of friends of mine or family members of mine who take abortion, for example, um, they would consider themselves pro-choice, but within pro-choice, there are folks who think, ah, wow, I, I really think that life, we can make a really strong case that life starts at however many weeks. Uh, my brother defined it as when there's a heartbeat and brain activity, which is really early on, and he still considers himself pro-choice. So to label someone with just categorically this way or that way, I think in any given issue, even the most contentious ones, is um, is a mistake, and we're missing out on on a whole rainbow of of possibilities. You know, I think so. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think you know the question I always have is why do we do that? That I think that that seems to be the a temptation now more than ever we want to paint people into corners. Um, so, you know, this person is this way, this person is that way. And we don't really want to ask those questions um, or to find out more about them. Um, I don't know if that's something that you have noticed so much and, and if you have any kind of observations of why that is. Yeah, I think about it all the time. And I think there are a lot of proclivities we each can give into one of those proclivities, frankly, is just intellectual laziness. Mm -hmm. If yeah. we no longer have to think deeply about important issues, it's less strenuous for us. It's easier, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing is to make it easier on ourselves. Sometimes we outsource our thinking. Well, our pastor said X, Y, or Z. Okay. Got it. Now we don't have to think about it anymore. You know, uh, I just read something about jo John MacArthur is a very prominent pastor in the Valley where I live, and he's mm -hmm. a prominent pastor around the country. And in the summer of 2020, he said, well, something along the lines of, well, fo folks who aren't voting for Trump probably aren't Christians. It, a very, very loose uh, quote. I, I, I forget exactly how he said it, but the implication was very clear that you couldn't possibly vote for Biden and, and uh, be, a, be a Christian. So I think a lot of folks, I'm friends with a lot of folks who go to Gracecom and they're ten, sometimes the tendency is he said it, we believe it, let's move on. You know, uh, I just don't think that's a, a healthy way to go about theology, let alone relating to our neighbors, you know? So I, um, I don't know why it is, uh, but it, I do think that we have to resist that temptation or that proclivity mm -hmm. to be intellectually, spiritually, mentally lazy, 
You know, I think it's a better way to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength if we really th- continue to think through these issues. Mm-hmm. You know, even even when Scripture uh, seems to speak very clearly on certain things, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Um, about let's see, 15 years ago or so, um, there was the issue of, and this is a confession of sorts. The issue of Prop 8 was was big mm-hmm. in California. I think it was it must have been 04. Because it was one of the props that Karl Rove put on the ballots in individual states to engender a sense of energy among a certain part of the population. And it was uh, about gay marriage. And at the time, the best I could do was come to a sort of libertarian stance on that. So I ended up voting against against Prop 8 because I thought, listen... I, I don't happen to be gay, but I have neighbors and friends and family members who are. And it's, I believe certain things because I think I'm deriving those things from scripture, but my neighbor doesn't, my my friend doesn't. So it, it's not my place to impose particular uh, beliefs on those people. But I think that my theological thinking was off base. I think that, you know, o- over time, I read certain translations of the Bible and I, you know, took gleaned certain things where there was uh, Hebrew Bi- from the Hebrew Bible or, or certain letters from the New Testament. And we all know what they are. But I really didn't. I, I think I think even though I was reading certain translations, I think it's still incumbent upon us to continue to dive deeper. Well, do, is is the best translation of that world word really homosexuality or homosexuals or homosexual acts or is the ancient Hebrew or the Aramaic or the Greek, is, is it, is it, is a better translation, something else? You know, I've, I've come to the understanding that it's saying something else, uh, but just sharing that evolution and thinking and understanding, you know, I, I think it's important for us to do that important work and to keep an open heart and open mind about the possibility that whatever conclusion we arrived at 15 years ago, let, you know, uh, let alone 30 years ago, or however long it was yesterday, we could be wrong. You know, I, I, I'm a Christian, but I am not Christ. <laughs> you know, I love Jesus, but right. I ain't him, <laughs> you know? So that means I could be wrong, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, I, I've shared this story and I think it's actually even a podcast episode. Um, this was back in the early nineties at a church in DC um, and it was, they were going to have a new pastor come on. And this was a Baptist congregation. It was, and the person that they were hiring um, was very much open and affirming when it came towards towards um, gay people. The congregation was kind of part progressive, but part evangelical. And so there was always going to be kind of some friction. And um, this pastor had a friend who was um, an evangelical woman and that woman got up and spoke and they said, we don't agree. And we don't agree on this issue, but we are, we're friends. And I think that she would make a good pastor. And I always share that story because it's so amazing that she was willing to reach across um, because she saw this woman, the pastor as a friend and someone that was had good skills, even if they disagreed on this issue. Um, but there was kind of a willingness to understand the complexity 
um, that was there that I don't think we could do today. Um, the, I don't see that, that that could happen today at all because we have kind of, as you said, become intellectually lazy um, and tribal. And so we don't really want to cross those barriers um, even for the sake of friendship um, because we want to have um, loyalty to a certain tribe. And I think that that's kind of sad. Yeah, I was curious about that as well. That So for, let me just answer that more directly by saying I want to hold out hope. Mm-hmm. I want to hold out hope that we know how to do this. What, what the illustration that you just shared, we know how to do this. We remember how to do this. We can do this. And it's not to say that there aren't any issues. There aren't any hills worth dying on. I, I, there, there may, there may be, or, or, you know, lines in the sand, there's no lines in the sand that you can't, you can cross. Um, I just think, that a lot of folks, there are too many lines in the sand. What hill are you ready to die on? What hill are you ready to fight for? I think there are too many of them, you yes. know? And, and, and if we're a silly example, so I'm, I'm a, I'm an Auburn fan, war damn Eagle, <laughs> you know? And, uh, cause my, my wife's from Alabama and, um, uh, so, some, some of her neighbors are Alabama fans. And, you know, the way I was introduced into, into the iron pole, into that rivalry was we're friends every day of the year, but the, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, you know, but then this, this incident happened where a dude was listening to the radio and he said, I'm going to show those Auburn. It was one of the years that Auburn won. I'm going to show them. I'm going to kill all them. Dan- the, there are these trees that a bunch of Auburn fans and students celebrate around and I'm going to kill them. And he like poisoned the dirt around the trees as, as his way of like protesting and showing those damn Auburn fans, you know? And, and Goodness. I just thought, man, he, like that, that's one of those Hills that you're, you're like dying on or killing trees on like literally, like, I think we've gone too far here, but I just want to hold out hope that we know how to do this, that we can redefine what, what is worth fighting for. I just think it's a smaller, it's a smaller set of issues that that we really got to get heated, you know, and, and I, I defer to I whenever possible, nonviolent resistance, communication, you know, stay at the table, stay in the relationship, stay in the conversation. So I, I try to do that. But listen, you know, to be totally candid, there are some times when it's just too much. I got to back away. Mm-hmm. There's some issues where I, I can't even I don't want to start throwing rocks. I want to hold out hope. Uh, but it's hard for me to be in that conversation. Folks who are still kind of, uh, to give you an example, folks who are sort of explaining away January 6th or saying it was really Black Lives Matter or saying it was really Antifa or or saying some, something along the lines of, look what you made us do. Like It's like justifying uh, violence and, and, and trying to overturn democracy. I can't necessarily be in that conversation. I'm not going to start throwing rocks at them. I'm not going to engage in the violence, but I can't necessarily. So I do have limitations too, you know, if I'm being totally, totally uh, candid about it. So So one of the interesting things about you is that you kind of come from an, an evangelical background, but even before that you grew up um, an Orthodox Jew um, 
So I'm just kind of curious the road of how that conversion happened, and then how did those two um, those two traditions inform who you are now, especially in this political religious context that we were living in? Yeah, that's a big question. I, I do want to clarify, though. I would I would I would describe myself as an observant Jew okay. who attend who was part of an Orthodox synagogue. Uh, so. I, I don't want to be misleading in, in that I, I wasn't a chassid. I, you know, but okay. we did keep kosher and keep mm-hmm. Shabbos and, you know, all the holidays, not just Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But um, so, it, but, but you ask a big question. How does that, what was the last part of your question again? How does that all come together? Or inform how does it all now? come together and how is it um, kind of, how does that guide you in this current religious and political um, context? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the way that I became a Christian is kind of a long story, but I will say that there was a series of doors uh, that I heard the knocking, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I started to open them up one at a time. And I had certain questions that had been percolating for years, and through a, a, a pretty intense process. It was a, when I was 29 years old there was a period of about six or eight months where I was just reading voraciously. I mean, literally is at least a six or eight or sometimes 10 hour a day reading habit. Cause I, I just wanted to explore these questions. The door had opened up for the empirical case of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And nobody had ever even presented that po- even bad arguments about that possibility. So I just started exploring it and it wasn't just looking for evidence like the, the Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel stuff. It was looking for theological, a, a set of theological and philosophical answers, while at the same time comparing what I, other philosophies that I'd studied previously. And really long story short, I had finally come to the conclusion that the uniquely Christian set of answers to how did this all come about? What is wrong in this creation? Who we are as, as a, a people or me as a person within a people? Uh, where, where is this all going? And uh, the, Christ, the uniquely Christian set of answers made more sense to me uh, intellectually, spiritually. Uh, so some of those questions had a spiritual element, of course. I, I could feel it again, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I could, I could feel it palpably. So finally I read the new Testament. I, that whole time I hadn't read the new Testament, but the new Testament to me read like a uniquely Jewish do- set of documents. Hmm. And it really spoke to me. Jesus uh, spoke to me as a rabbi and a prophet. And, and I came to the conclusion that Jesus was Messiah that Jesus was risen, is risen. And, you know, I, I had to learn a whole bunch of new stuff, like how to talk to God without an organized prayer, you know? And then I had to learn a whole bu- bunch of new stuff after I, I started talking to God um, as a believer in Jesus as Messiah, mm-hmm. as, such as how to tell my Jewish parents that I'm a Christian now, you know? So that's, that's also, by the way, a, a huge part of what what my what what a lot of my focus is now mm-hmm. in that I have to learn how to speak with people across differences, some differences which are very heated, 
there's great chasms between between some of these differences that we're talking about. So I have to be earnest about that and understand understand what what sinews hold us together as well as to really name those differences so we can understand them better and drive down better. And how that all comes together now is sort of what I said before in that a lot of a lot of what I believe as a Christian is informed by who I am as a Jew. Like the, the, sometimes it's said that I, um, I left my faith. I left my religion. I didn't really leave my religion, nor did my religion leave me. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've evolved some things that I've, I've thought. Obviously a lot of non-Christian Jews, uh, non-Christian Jews don't think Jesus is a Messiah. E- even, casual, like once a year Jews, people who are only Jews because of their, uh, their family, their heritage, uh, they know, Hey, you got that Jesus thing. You're not a Jew anymore. Like, you know, so there there's that, but I believe that, I believe that these, these conversations have been going on for 2000 years. You know, I, I, I imagine I, I read scholars like, uh, jo- uh not Josh McDowell, um, N.T. Wright, mm-hmm. great historian, yes. great theologian, I think. And he, his work helps me to reimagine first century Israel, first century Palestine, and, and reimagine someone like Peter going home to his, his family and saying, I've been listening to this man, Jesus, and, and I think he's it. I think he's the Messiah, you know, or the next generation of, of believers having that same conversation and talk about a heated moment in history. The, the the temple is literally burning. The center of their religion and their education and their politics and their economy was literally burning, you know, about a generation after Jesus. And that's the time that certain people were going home to their families and saying, I believe Jesus is the risen Lord. I believe Jesus is, is the risen Messiah. I believe he's it. So fast forward 2000 years, and you got one shoe from Jersey who has to go home and have the same conversation. I don't think I was facing, I, I was facing quite a bit of scrutiny, especially from certain family members, but not quite that much scrutiny. <laughs> so <laughs> got to keep it in perspective, you know? <laughs> How do you think um, your faith has been, I think, strength, strengthened because of, of your um, Jewish background? Because I think one of the things that I think a lot of us, forget, of course, is that Christianity sprang from Judaism, and that for the first few decades, most of the early church were Christians who were originally Jews. And so that has been something we've, I think, sometimes forget. And how has that helped you as a person of faith Um kind of to see things, how, how, does that, how does it help to strengthen your faith to, to see the, that connection? It's an interesting question. I haven't thought of it exactly the way that you asked it, but what comes to mind is there are perhaps deeper roots that not just a person who is born into a Jewish family can tap into, but anyone, anyone who's part of the people of God can tap into. Because the other thing is, is, we can place ourselves within the larger story that way. 
that we can, if we believe this thing, whether you're young earth creationist, old earth creationist, or something other than that, that then you can buy into this, this narrative of a creator God mm. who that we we're living within his creation or her creation. I, you know, I've had an interesting <laughs> conversation with a theologian about removing that, that male identifier from God because he's more transcendent than that. But that's another conversation, but the creator God, he created this creation and then he created us as creatures, human beings as creatures with the opportunity to commune with him, to be in communion with him, but also to elevate the value of that loving communion by giving us the opportunity to freely choose that, that relationship, right? Mm -hmm. But giving us the freedom to choose that relationship inevitably means if we are not God, which the two, the two most uh, strongest convictions that I have is there is a God and I ain't him. <laughs> right. Uh, so, um, but being not God, being not a perfect creature, I'm inevitably going to choose something other than, you know, uh, a perfect communion, perfect relationship with God. So, so that that's Genesis three, right? Mm -hmm. That's the fall. Yep. Now the rest of the story going forward until revelation 22. And in a way the the story of the, of uh, God's story is still being written and we're in it. So where are we? We're participating in God's redemption plan. Once the fall happened, once freely choosing something other than, than God's ideal, the rest of the story is God, God knew that in advance. And he said, okay, so we're going to create this whole redemption thing. And it's through the people of Israel, people descended from Abraham at first, and then he redefined it or, or, or spread it out, or I, I don't know the, the right word for it, but around the person of Jesus. So yeah, it's still the people of Israel, the people descended from Abraham, but also the, the, the you know, God in the beginning was a word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, God among us, right? And so, and then God defined, redefined who the people of God were to, to allow those all nations um, around the person of Jesus. I don't know if I'm making any sense. Right oh, now. Yeah, yes, you are making some sense. But, but to me, that makes sense to, to sum it up. There, there's another um, theologian that I really appreciated uh, uh, Van Hooser, Kevin Van Hooser. He wrote, um, I, I met him one time when he was working on the drama. I think it was called the drama of doctrine. I might have the title wrong, but he summarized what he was working on by saying the Bible in a way is a story that's still being written and we're in it. So we get to participate in what God is doing in his creation. I believe in an open universe. I believe in a creator God. I believe that God can act within his creation. And I believe that he's giving individuals an opportunity to participate in that as a part of the bigger redemption project. So I'm participating with you just in this conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, I, tikkun olam, make the world a better place. We we all get to participate in that. Now, some would obviously Christians would obviously say, you know, no one comes to Father, no one comes to the Father but through me, as it says in Scripture. Um, but but you know, we we can that that's where we go to seminary and and talk about that and throw different ideas around and kind of start to form what our actual beliefs are. But that's it, man. I I, I don't know. That was a long way around the barn, but hopefully yeah, I answered your question. question. 
<laughs> so where do you think you see in this time period? And I think as a period that we are so divided and especially, you know, in the aftermath of January 6th, where do you see God's redemptive work happening? I see it happening in conversations just like this. Okay. I see it happening in folks. I just, I think that we're, if we're looking for a, an earth shattering event, even something as seismic as what happened on January 6th, I think we're, we're going to be disappointed again and again. But I think if we're looking for the sanctity in the mundane, if we're looking for something sanctified in a conversation I have with my neighbor, if I'm looking for something sanctified in a, in a glass of, of Cabernet with my friend Pete, who, who has Fox News on all the time, <laughs> you know, is a big Sean Hannity fan. I think that I think there can be sanctity in that. I think that there can be sanctity in being convicted. I'll give you something specific. Uh, and I, I, I hope this makes sense. The way that I speak to my wife and my kids, I realized that we're in a time where virtues like grace are lacking. Mm-hmm. And for uh, my, my oldest is, is 20. She's about to be 21. And much of her life, I did have categorical views on things I thought were really important. So there were many conversations where, whether I said it out loud or just had a certain posture of, I am right and you are wrong. And to the extent that you agree with me, you're going to be okay. (laughs) You know? Um, But, and and listen, sometimes that is the case where the parent, if the parent constantly is thinking about the best interest of the, the child, um, there are going to be times when the child's just wrong and you got to, you got to put bumpers on that lane. They're bowl, bowling in and make sure that they, they don't cause too much harm to themselves or others. But a lot of times it's just about grace. It's just about delighting in that child or delighting in your spouse and delighting in their presence. You used the word before that, that I've come to learn more about over the last year. And that's affirm, not just accept, as if I'm some, you know, greater authority that is, you know, that has this power to, I accept you. Like, who cares? We're all creatures, you know, we're all kind of in this together, but to affirm, to celebrate just the presence of that person on their terms, mm-hmm. who they, for who they are. My, my, the older of my two boys, he used to touch everything, including garbage cans. Like it just grossed me out. And sometimes he'd get sick because he touched something and he, you know, got the germs and, but you know, but that's part of who he is. He was so curious and what did it touch and what did it feel and what did it experience? And, you know, so as opposed to shaming the child for touching something, you know, he'll have to learn some hard lessons himself and maybe kind of adjust as he goes forward. Most stuff isn't life-threatening or even going to put him in serious harm's way but to celebrate his curiosity and his joie de vivre his, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's, that's better to emphasize than the don't touch that. Don't touch that. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, you know, I think one of the things that you talked about earlier is that people are intellectually lazy. And the, the thing that always keeps coming to mind for me is the, the view of faith as imagination. Um, 
that faith is also um, being willing to kind of see beyond what we see, um, to, to kind of think out, imagine what God could do or and what can be done. Um, and I think the the thing that seems to be lacking in our time, I think definitely lacking in our politics, um, is that that lack of faith um, or lack of imagination that we can actually see something that may be out beyond our own, what we are expecting. Um, and I think, you know, that's something that I'm, I'm still learning about the importance of that as a faith, as imagination, because I think if we don't do that, then we kind of rely on what's here and sometimes what are, what the circumstances are. And those circumstances sometimes can lead us down some crazy paths. So. Yeah. It sounds to me like you're on the right track, Dennis. I, mm -hmm. If you're connecting faith to imagination, what I would connect as part of that equation is creativity. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and we are created um, in, in God's image. Each of us is created in God's image. And what's one of God's biggest attributes is his, his attribute as a creator, mm -hmm. right? So create creativity. What, what he did is he brought order out of chaos, right? So, so bringing order out of chaos is part of what we do as, as in the image of God, little creators, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that's part of what faith is, is determining, man, this just doesn't make sense. And thinking it through and, and trying to make sense out of something that doesn't make sense. But it takes creativity. It takes imagination to start to put some of those pieces together. And then inevitably, we don't have all the answers. No matter how many PhDs we got or, you know, how many answers we arrive at, every answer just seems to spur 100 more questions. Questions, yeah. So that's where the creativity is in filling in some of those blanks. Mm -hmm. But being willing to go about that, to to come to a certain conclusion, almost like a like a, a rock climber has like a, a nook that they're grabbing onto to get to that next step. And sometimes you're hanging on by a fingernail, you know, but just something to hold on to. And, and that's definitely, you could describe my own faith journey that way for sure. Because there were times when I first became a Christian, it was early two thousands. And mm -hmm. immediately I started to see things that challenged my faith. You know, my, my brother, again, I'm bringing my brother up again, <clears throat> but, um, to, to some, he, he summed it up. There are certain things that I think the, some of the folks I was going to church with that weren't embodying the virtues that I was reading about in scripture. They weren't, they were, they were prioritizing things like, uh, I didn't get the whole thing about don't cuss. I don't cuss. So they, they think I'm a Christian. They're going to become a Christian because I don't cuss. First of all, I'm from Jersey. So we don't cuss, we curse. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I, I was thinking, man, if that's the thing that you think is going to convert a lot of, I don't know, maybe there are some people who are like came to the Lord, like that guy doesn't cuss. I better become a Christian now. You feel like it just doesn't make sense to me, but you know, you might not cuss, but you're still a jerk. You know, mm -hmm. my brother put it another way. He, he cussed when he said it, but uh, you I, know, yeah, he I said, can kind of guess what word he used too. <laughs> yeah, Jesus may love you, but everybody else thinks you're a, you know, fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Um, so again and again, I came up against this thing. I'm looking around, I'm like, these guys are, and, and these folks are just behaving in a way that 
I don't know. I just don't admire. I don't think embodies what I would define as good. And now that I'm a Christian, I'm really studying scripture. They're not embodying what the Bible would define as good or virtuous. So I kept on coming against faith struggles. But, you know, if I just continue to dive in, God has a way of, of, of holding on to you. You know, God has a way of when, when you're, when you're feeling the most lost to whether it's something inspiring that you see in nature, or I, I read a lot, uh, something inspiring that maybe somebody recommends to me or in another person in a conversation like this one, an edifying conversation, encouraging, inspiring conversation that you have, God has a way of, of giving you just that buoy, that, that mooring, if you will, to, to allow you to, again, climb up that wall or climb up that ladder, keep on understanding more. So, yeah, yeah, I, I just, I want to hold out hope, man. I want to hold out hope that Trump has not taken over for Jesus, <laughs> you know, yeah. that, or tr- not even Trump now, but like Trumpism, you know, a lot of our folks, a lot of our friends are, I don't know, they're, they're just, they forgot that time and again and again and again, not just the Jews, but you know, in, in throughout post, uh, you know, in the Christian era, after, after the time of Jesus, the people of God just got distracted. You know, they got distracted, not by something that was 180 degrees off. Sometimes it was 180 degrees off of what was good and godly, but some, a lot of times it was more like five or 10 degrees off of what was good and godly. You know, you just five or 10, just kind of like the serpent in, in, uh, tempting Eve. Um, it, it wasn't, he was quoting scripture, but it was just a little bit off. You know what I mean? And, and, and I think it, looking at the Jews at Mount Sinai, they just heard the voice of God himself, you know, and yet they're building this golden calf or the golden Trump or something. <laughs> well, there was a golden Trump. So. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was, I thought that was just poetic. I thought that was so beautiful, you know, in its own kind of weird warped way. Cause it's like, help us, help us see. And if you can't see that, like, I don't, I don't know what to do for you anymore, you know? No. But the reason I think the Israelites were worshiping at the golden calf is because it was a form of worship that they recognized. We understand this. This looks familiar to us. This is not alien to us, you know? So it looked, it, it was something that they could fall right into easily. So are we deceived to think that we in 2022 can't fall into something similar? Is the, what, what, what forms of idolatry are, are we falling into that we don't even recognize as such that we've, we've, but, but when somebody comes in and starts with a personal preference, a political preference, a social preference, and then back scripture into it, they cut shards of scripture out of verses here, out of verses there, and they back it into an, a, an a priori, a predisposed preference that they have. Mm-hmm. It's a form of idol worship. It's a form of put, you know, that shall have no other gods before me. You just put something before the word and that's your political preference. Right. So I think we got to be on guard. Me too, man. Me too. I got to be on guard too. So I, you know, one of the questions that I've also had about since you've already kind of brought up Trump is why are there so many people of faith that follow someone whose life doesn't even come close to living as a Christian. Um, in, in many cases, I don't think he even really knows some of the basic aspects of the faith. But yet there are people who see him as godly, 
um, that he is going to restore the nation. Um, they see him bringing order um, when it seems more that he's bringing chaos. And so what do, do you think people see in him um, that makes them want to follow him? The biggest reason that I can tell is can be summed up in one of his candidate, um, his campaign taglines, he'll fight for us. So I think they tapped into this mindset that's been nurtured for a long time. And the deception is that we're in a culture war, you know, they're trying to take Christmas away from us. Like there's a war on Christmas, you know, the next thing, you know, we're not going to be able to worship, you know, they, they, they conflated, uh, things we had to do for the pandemic with they're trying to take your, your freedom of religion away. We're not going to be able to worship the way we want. So it, it all feeds into this mindset of there's a, they that's mm-hmm. coming for us, you know, and to identify it requires a lot of cognitive dissonance, but we're all guilty of that. We're all prone to that. But that general mindset of there's a culture war and if there's a culture war, we now have to define who the enemy is. And then once we define who the enemy is, we have to then go about defeating that enemy. So if that's the mindset, then Trump kind of makes sense because all of everybody can see Trump's faults. You know, even, even guys who are the, the most uh, ardent Trump supporters in, in church, they, they, they might even concede just to look like they're being objective. Well, I wish he wouldn't tweet so much, you know, um, but the winning that supposed war becomes the, the number one. Oh, can you hear Charles Mingus? That's, okay. <laughs> That's Charles Mingus. The third, I can make him stop. I could put him upstairs if you want, but we can have him as sort of background music. It's cool. I have um, okay. cats, so I, I understand the whole how animals act. So it's it's inevitable, man. Like he has such brilliant timing. He always does this when when we're recording. Um, so if that's the mindset, it kind of makes sense. But it requires it requires a few things. Number one, it requires again a lot of proclivities. Proclivity to generalize. Anybody who isn't a Trump fan is one of them. Generalized. It requires mischaracterizing. So assuming somebody who might have voted for a Democrat once or maybe didn't vote for Trump in 16 and 2020 is 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 also then, you know, they want to kill babies and they want to, you know, um, take away our guns and they want to. I, I don't know. You just have you get one data point. This person didn't vote for Trump. Oh, they must be all these other things. So generalize, mischaracterize and then vilify. You demonize that person, generalize, mischaracterize and vilify, because if you can vilify them, then they're part of the culture war on the other side. They're part of the other side. Hmm. And that's where, again, that's where a Trump makes sense. But it's a form of ideology because what you're doing is you're you're elevating these generalizations, mischaracterizations, and vilifications over and above everything else in the Bible. Because let's let's face it, we can open up just about any page of the Bible and it testifies against the words, actions, and character of Donald J. Trump. You know, we we can go. We can go just about anywhere, whether it's about the words, character, and, and, and actions of Donald Trump, or whether it's about fools, you know, all throughout Proverbs, for example, whether it's or, or, or through um, uh, all through scripture about fools who fall into these traps of, you know. Uh, 
So I don't know. I, I think I think that that element he's fighting for us can explain a lot of it if you really think about that. And then start to talk to your friends who are, you know, uh, it. Hopefully, we still have friends who maybe disagree with us about about Trump or Trumpism or what it's all about, and maybe understand it within that context. Because I, I think if we do, I think if we understand it within that context, then we we have some practical work to do. And I'm not saying I'm 100% right on this. I'm just saying if I'm in the conversation, I got some hope. We got a fighting chance, you know, or a, a nonviolent fighting chance, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to persuade. Yeah. But also for, to have that person persuade me a little bit, perhaps, you know. Well, that's an interesting thing, too, is that to have the other side, li- to listen to the other side and have them maybe persuade you a bit. Um, I mean, how does that work? Especially, you know, you talked about your friend Pete, who is um, listens to Fox a, a lot. You know, how do you allow that person to change you, um, even though you may disagree sharply on an issue? Well, there's a lot of points of agreement. I mean, I love Pete's dog. Bella's always a pleasure to see in the morning. I love Pete's. He's a great cook. His wife is a great baker. Um, he's He's got wonderful stories. He's originally from Italy. He's got wonderful stories about how he came here. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of points where I appreciate who he is. There's obviously a lot of points of disagreement. I, I wish he wasn't listening to so much Tucker Carlson. Um, but... You know, if if I nurture that relationship, you know, maybe maybe a conversation with me takes him away from Tucker for an hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's doing some good work. But maybe there's something that I hadn't thought of. I hadn't thought of something that I'm saying that isn't as thoughtful, isn't giving him as much credence, you know. And again, sometimes it's on difficult issues. You know, one of my kids decided, decided not to get the vaccine. That's a hard one. That's a hard one because I think he's putting himself and others in harm's way. So that's a really hard one. But just understanding why he came to that conclusion, um, again, gives me a fighting chance, keeps me in the conversation. You know, so I still don't agree with it. I, I don't even agree with why he ended up completely digging his heels in. It was more of a reaction to people shaming him and harassing him and just mistreating him because he was at first hesitant and then eventually became pretty stuck in in his, uh, his decision. Um, but I just thought if, if I treat him as a human being is as a thinking human being and, and honor where he is in his thinking process, Mm -hmm. I at least have, have a chance of, of persuading him, you know, and it's not to say he persuaded me that to be anti-vax I'm not certainly on this, not on this issue, but, um, he persuaded me to understanding how someone could come to that conclusion. So there is a little bit of persuasion there. Mm-hmm. I would say most persuasion is just like, again, it's not 180 degrees in one conversation. It's one degree in one conversation with one person that you are in relationship with, you know, and being open to the possibility that you might be persuaded. Otherwise, listen, I was a Jew. I was a non-Christian, non-believing Jew. Somebody persuaded me that Jesus died and rose again as the Messiah, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Sometimes you're, you're not going to be persuaded. Sometimes a person that you're talking to is not going to be persuaded and that's okay. But sometimes if you have the truth, then, then you got pretty firm ground to stand on and hopefully you'll bring folks, you'll bring folks along with you, you know? Where do you see the church as an institution 
kind of trying to build bridges. Um, because I think someone who is watching the news may think that the church is just one other institution that's just driving a wedge between people. But where have you seen that happening, um, where people are kind of trying to bring people to the table to try to form relationships um, to bridge those divides? Yeah. You know, Russell Moore reminded us that the church is worldwide. Mm-hmm. So we tend to get, I tend, I sometimes forget and get myopic and thinking the church is just what I'm seeing here in Santa Clarita, you know, and Johnny Mac's influence, <laughs> but it's not, it's worldwide. There's some great work being done in individual churches, even here in Southern California, you know, the church that I attend now, I used to attend what I would consider a lot of, I wouldn't say it's a fundamentalist church, but I would say a lot of fundamentalists go there. Um, and, uh, but I, I go to a church now that the work that we do, who we are as a people is more defined by how we welcome folks who don't have houses right now, or reaching out to folks who may have been born on the other side of, you know, these imaginary lines on maps that we draw to, to, you know, so that we can call this one illegal, um, how we treat folks among us who happen to be born on the other side of these, these lines on maps. Uh, so, I think that's that's real bridge building, you know, and, and if, if we ever forget how to do it, we need to look no further than Jesus himself. He was going to those people that were put out. They were, you know, people with skin diseases. Um, they, they couldn't be a part of of uh, of the community. They needed to be separated away from. Well, Jesus was healing them and bringing them back into that uh, people who weren't born under one of the 12 tribes. You know, he he was going to folks who were either half step out or a whole step outside of that and dealing with them. He was he was de- he was going to lands where there were herds of of pigs. You know, totally unkosher, and he was sanctif- He was doing he was sanctifying individuals and, and and moments in time, even in in places like that where you know unkosher animals were were hordes of them were, you know, so. We, if we're looking for, if we're looking to to stay within this pure circle of only folks who believe the right, what we think is the right way to believe, or or, I, I don't know, I, I just think we're not following Jesus's lead the right way. So just look for those opportunities, mm-hmm. and that's that's how we can that's how we can build bridges. There seems to be these days a lot of talk about. Um, civil war um we just hear it i i don't think that there's a a week that goes by i don't hear that um and it can get kind of scary um you kind of wonder you know what could happen yeah how does the church deal with that how do christians deal with that um i don't think that you know it doesn't mean that it will happen but i think we all feel like there is this possibility of it happening, but how does a church speak to that? It takes courage and it takes integrity on the part of leaders. And I think we've seen a lot of those leaders stand up. You know, I, I just mentioned one, I mean, Russell Moore was the head of the ERLC. He, and, and his politics, if we're being objective, his politics are still super conservative. Yes. As we would think of it. You know, but there's there's plenty. There's 
plenty of folks who one by one, whether it's in journalism uh, that that identify as Christians, uh, like um, E.J. Dion or Michael Gerson, uh, who and Ger in Gerson's case, he was associated with the conservative movement. You know, he was I think he was a speechwriter for for George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. But but our own pastors, you know, have to identify it, and we they need strength and support from us because. Because they're getting, they're getting, I, I know pa pastor friends of mine are getting dozens, if not hundreds of emails from their Trump supporting uh, congregants objecting to the wrong bumper sticker on one of the cars in their parking lot. What are we going to do about this? You know, uh, even something as, as, as simple as that, as, as just, in, inconsequential as that. And, and there's, there's great uproar about it. And there's great, um, there's plenty of room in a lot of Bible studies uh, and a lot of uh, church gatherings for folks who are just adamantly pro-Trump pro in, our, in our time. So a pastor, it's, it's hard for a pastor or say a head of a school, a Christian school to confront that there's too much cost and there's not enough support. Mm -hmm. So if we, number one, help a pastor or, or a, a Christian leader identify that and recognize it for what it is, and then come alongside them and say, we'll take some of those, we'll take some of that heat with you. That's, I think that's something concrete that we can do, mm -hmm. assuming that you have a willing, a willing uh, collaborator with uh, with that church leader, but I think that I think it's it's just a hard job. A lot of leaders, number one, a lot, there there are a lot of leaders who are just completely Trump trained. Um, that you know they they are of this mindset that there's a culture war and Trump's fighting for us, and whoever's not for us is against us. And there's not much there's not much you can do there except to maybe just try to stay in that conversation, and again persuade one degree, one percent. But there are a lot of others who just have almost thrown in the towel. I can't talk about this stuff because there's too much of a cost to talk about it. That it's, you know, they, they've made this calculation of the Christian nationalists are too loud, too vocal, and present too much of a danger to everything else that's going on in our church that if I address that, it's going to cause all kinds of harm to all the other ministries. So I just think that's the wrong calculation. Mm -hmm. I think that it's, it's a, it's a cancer that thinking is a cancer and it needs to be confronted. But the pastors who are even on the fence about it or are reluctant to address it, they need some help. They need some support, or they just need to be in dialogue with somebody who recognizes it for what it is. So I, I think it's, I think, cause I do think that there is, whether there's a majority or at least a plurality of folks in the churches who are just like this, we got to stop or, or, or just are not on the Trump train in general. There, there's more of a plurality that 81%, I think is, is that, that is often cited of, of evangelicals, I think is a deceiving number. I think there's more of us. Yeah. I've always disagreed with that number just because I think evangelicals are far more diverse than people give, give them credit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's just a couple ways that number one, 
we often forget to say 81% of white evangelicals, because that's the actual number that, that has come up. But the other big thing is that there are a number of people who are identifying as evangelical who aren't actually evangelical. And I'm not saying that because like, I'm trying to be dismissive of, you know, the problems that exist within the church. I'm saying that because there are a lot of folks who just don't go to church, wouldn't say that they believe in a risen Jesus, that some of these clear markers of, of what's an actual evangelical, they say it because they've been going to Trump rallies and everybody says they're an evangelical at Trump rally. So, you know, so I think a lot of those folks are included in that 81% number. And we just need to give voice. We need to work harder to give voice who aren't the loudest, <laughs> who yeah. aren't the screamers, you know? So where do you see God working in the, especially in these next few years, as we're kind of heading up to another elect, a presidential election in two years? Do you see some kind of a sense of a movement of where things are headed that can lead towards more reconciliation, um, kind of against the forces that want to divide and, and conquer? You know, I've asked questions like that of my guests, mm -hmm. and I've, I've asked almost as a way of saying, please give me some hope. <laughs> well, yeah, because <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard to see that. But well, I think it must be there. So, okay. So I'm going to give you the bad news first. Okay. Um, as you, as we've discussed, I am a Jew, so I am one generation removed from cousins of mine burning in ovens because of political differences, racial identification, and things. A lot of the things that you know, like there's, I wouldn't say it's the same as what we see going on now, but there's certainly rhymes with it. You know, um, I'm two generation. My grandmother uh, was born in Russia or what's now the Ukraine. And she fled where her family was very prosperous for at least a century. She fled because, as she put it, the only thing the czarists and the Bolsheviks and the, you know, uh, the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, there, there were czarists, Bolsheviks, and um, who was the other group? Cossacks. There were all these different groups. The only thing, she said, the only thing every, all these other groups could agree on is that they all hated the Jews. So, you know, so I come from a long line of, of people that whose houses were burned down, who were killed, who were, you know, terrible things happened to uh, because of the, these sorts of political and racial, um, ethnic, religious divisions, right? So if things get worse, that, that's a possibility. And there's something in me that I really hope it doesn't go that way. But we've survived, right? Mm -hmm. The people of, of, of God have survived before Constantine made Christianity an official religion. It was a persecuted minority. Christians were, were getting slaughtered as sport, right? But Christianity survived. Before that, there were the Babylonians and the Persians and all these, you know, powerful, powerful empires. And yet the Jews survived. The people of God survived. So listen, uh, the bad news is there's a possibility that democracy as we know it ain't going to exist in 10 years or 20 years. But that's okay. The people of God will survive. I believe that. But here's the thing. Let me give some good news. <laughs> Salt that sour a little bit. Um, I see people that as recently as five or six years ago, or even more recently, that you might have considered part of a problem that, that has now metastasized that have awakened in a way. So some of some of the leading voices of conservatism 
Charlie Sykes, mm-hmm. you know, Bill Crystal, a neoconservative, uh, Joe Walsh, uh, one of the big stars of the Tea Party movement. A lot of these guys and, and gals have awake people who are part of the Trump administration. So many people who are part of the Trump administration that, you know, served some, some of them with great reservations uh, from the get-go saying, well, you know, somebody's got to occupy, I, I don't like Trump. Don't think that he's competent and all these things, but I got to serve because somebody's got to, somebody with experience uh, and integrity has to serve in those posts. And I'm going to do my best to make the best out of this administration. There are others who were hardcore, you know, uh, 2016 and into the first parts of the administration who then later sort of awakened, if you will, to the real dangers of Trumpism. And one at a time, we see folks coming out. Some and and different incidents along the way. Some folks had this, you know, this this epiphany, you know, whether it was uh, in when he was standing side by side with Putin, and and pref, you know, preferring Putin over his own security community, whether it was Charlottesville and good people on both sides, whether it was um, or, or even before that. I like my my candidates who aren't caught, you know, you know, talking about John McCain or whether it was um, early June, right after George Floyd was killed and and waving a, a Bible, you know, in front of a church he never attended, not even having gone in to, to, for, to do for some prayer and some meeting with the pastor, but just as a photo op. There, there are these incidents along the way where folks are like, that's it, you know, and, and January 6th. Now, some folks have come kind of reverted back mm-hmm. post-January 6th, but there's any number of exit ramps. And, and each time we're, we're, we're seeing folks who, again, to use the same, the same word again, just awaken. So we can, we can glean a sense of hope from one individual at a time. But again, if we're looking for this one, I, I thought on the morning of January 6th, I'm on the West Coast. So it was about 11 o'clock in the morning and I tuned into, um, I tuned on the radio to, uh, it was the end of oh, Wilkow, the Wilkow majority. So the Wilkow majority is on, on, um, Patriot radio on XM right before Hannity. So I tuned into the end of Wilkow's show because I wanted to hear the end of his show. And I wanted to hear the beginning of, of Sean Hannity's show. Cause in my mind, I'm thinking this is a big thing. This is kind of like September 11th. And surely this is one of those things where we can all come together. We can all recognize this as this is too, this has gone too far. We all got to come together and do something about this. And what do you know on that day when people were still burning, trying to burn down the Capitol, when people were still defecating in the Capitol, when people would start trying to stop the, the, the election from happening, stop the, the, um, the peaceful transfer of power. There, there, was, there was Hannity with the talking points that then congealed within the next 24 hours. Well, look what you made us do. You know, where was your outrage when? At referring to, you know, violence that, that broke out over the summer. Um, and, and, well, it, um, I'm, many people are saying it was, you know, really Black Lives Matter that were inciting this. And, you know, false flag operation. We heard the beginnings, the seeds of those talking points on that day. So listen, we're, we're not going to see this big, you know, seismic event that changes everything. I just don't think we're going to see that, but we can see one person at a time. Mm-hmm. We can see it one conversation at a time. We can see it one relationship that's redeemed at a time. 
And, and, and if we're in for the long haul and we hold out hope in each other and, and, and in ourselves and, and in God's creation and God's bigger redemption plan, man, I, I think we can keep going, man. I, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be uh, rose colored glasses with all this. I'm just, I'm just trying to share some of these, some of these things that have helped me through these last five, six years. Mm -hmm. Some of these things that have helped me continue to move forward and do good work. Some of these things that have helped me not get discouraged, but just keep on having, knowing that it's worth having that conversation with that person who just seems so damn obnoxious, who seems so lost in, in, in where they're at, who, who, who you might see as such a, such a part of the problem. I don't want to be that. You know, I mentioned Joe Walsh. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of going off in a couple of different directions here. I mentioned Joe Walsh. He came on our program and uh, I loved it. We, we, I learned about where he's at now. I learned a lot more about his backstory. I learned about certain things that he's really changed his views on. But then we, we talked about a couple areas where we do disagree. But again, it's like we disagree on guns. We disagree on immigration. But within that, we come from similar places and, and, it's not we completely disagree. We have some overlap of, of agreement in, in terms of actual policy. But fast forward, I was starting to get comments on the different places where our, our program shows up, YouTube and other places. And there was one commenter who said, uh, who pointed to a tweet that he had in 2016 about, let's grab our muskets. If this doesn't go Trump's way, let's grab our muskets. And, you know, former Congressman Walsh talked about that. He said that was one of the dumbest things. But I'll tell you what, I probably got at least a thousand more, if not 10,000 more that were just as dumb and, but they're dumb. And I have to keep on moving forward and acknowledge and own up to what I did wrong and try to do better going forward. You know, so I appreciated that, but this person just did not want to let that go. Hmm. And not only that, she equated it with, um, she literally within two comments, she got to, uh, the musket tweet to child rapists and Nazis. <laughs> it took two Two comments to get there. Wow. One back and forth. And by the second comment, she child rapists and Nazis. I'm like, listen, dumb tweets do not equate to child rapists. Can we like, can we chill? So I don't want to be, I don't want to be that person. Her her nickname on YouTube was Trixie. I don't want to be Trixie. I like, you know, if somebody puts out a dumb tweet, I don't want to put, put them in the same boat with Hitler, <laughs> you know? So I think related to this question of hope. I want to kind of turn it around is where are you seeing evil in our society? And because I think that we have to have to, to really look at hope. We also have to realize where there is also the dark side um, in our world. And, you know, I hesitate bringing that up because I don't want it to be as you've talked about us and them, but it also seems like you have to recognize where there is, sin that's happening yeah um so i guess that's kind of where i'm coming from with that question i think if we don't start with the evil within our own heart we're mm -hmm. in real trouble i think you know it's not so coincidentally i think the founders of the united states uh, of this country started with that possibility mm -hmm. that if we don't earnestly and and humbly account for that possibility that that we 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 have this potential within each of us then then we're not able to deal with it 
in the world. I don't think we're that effective at dealing with it in the world. So constantly checking ourselves, checking myself to see where my own pridefulness or any number of other proclivities are being harbored and manifested. And, you know, and then being able to see through more humble glasses so that, again, you, you can then see other human beings um, through the lens of grace, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and seeing them indeed as human beings. But maybe that's an easy way out of the question or, or overly theologizing no, question. No, I think that's a good place to start, I think. Yeah. So. Yeah. But listen, it exists all around. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have such limited control over, you know, people and events and all kinds of things around us. So I, I, try, to, I try to think about what I do have some agency over. You know, if, if the people in my family and my circle of friends um, allow me the privilege of some influence, that's good. You know, and, and listen, sometimes it's happening with folks. We've been talking this most of this time about folks who are on the Trump train, mm-hmm. but there are friends who are definitely not on the Trump train, um, like Trixie, who I just described, you know, um, that, that we have to, there's Charles Mingus third again. Sorry about that. There are folks who are not in that delusion, if you will, that we can exhort you know, I heard uh, a friend of mine, um, he, he's become a friend who, uh, his name's Pete Dominic, um, who had someone on who studies, oh gosh, what was the episode? It was, it was a controversial issue, but Pete always does such a great intellectual erudite deep dive, brings on a great expert. It might've been for critical race theory, but uh, don't, don't quote me on that. But the expert was really, really knowledgeable, really, really winsome, really had a, had a broad knowledge of the subject. But at one point he said uh, he was talking about folks who didn't agree with his, his perspective. He was a critical race theory uh, specialist. Um, and again, I might be wrong about the subject, but it was a subject with the same level of potential uh, immediacy and, and intensity in today's culture. Uh, but at one point, this fellow said, these are the same people and then fill in the blank. And Pete disrupted me, said, well, listen, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to say these are the same people, you know, because what that's, that's falling into a similar trap. You might, you might have something to offer here to help us understand our, our nation's history um, through a more critical uh, full, uh, 360 lens. That's very helpful. But in doing so, I don't want to fall into some of these same traps of these are the same people, the generalizing. Now, Pete didn't say all that, but just his gentle exhortation was really appreciated. So knowing that it's not just, you know, it's not just one side, if you want to think of it that way. Mm-hmm. It's any one of us. Mm-hmm. It's any one of us. Right. So, yeah, that's I, I'd love to give you a simpler, shorter answer of like, here's where it is and here's what we could do. It's that, it's that, uh, you know, head coming up and we got to bonk it on the head and, you know, be done with this. But I just don't think it's that simple. Well, it goes back to nuance. Um, yeah. Things are not always as, as easy as we would love them to be. Yeah. Yeah. I want to wrap it up with one final question. And um, this is something I've been 
thinking about a lot lately in my own life. And I think the question I have is, what are you thankful for or grateful for? Oh, baby. <laughs> that is a great question and is so apt for, for, I don't know if you, if you know, like how well you know me, but that is so on the money for me and something that I've had to consciously work on. I have been consciously working on it for almost exactly 15 years. Wow. Now I haven't shared these, uh, this exercise publicly, except sometimes in conversations, it comes up, but I've been, um, for my prayer time, I write mm -hmm. and it's just my conversation with God. And the only, there's a couple kind of structure-ish things that I do with it. One is just a being of that mindset that I am in conversation with God. God knows me better than I know me, so I can't BS God. So I just got to be in conversation with him, you know, just completely as transparent as I could possibly be and free flow of thought. The only other structured thing that I try to do daily is what am I thankful for? And usually I try to hit at least three things. Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's more. So uh, it's interesting that you asked that because I have to consciously do it uh, because I, I had been praying for a sense of peace. Um, I had been praying for some other things that being mindful about what I'm thankful for helped lead me to, you know? So what am I thankful for today? There's this one little bloom in our backyard. It's a yellowish orangish rose. I'm thankful for that. Uh, Charlie, Charles Mingus III, our, our pooch. Uh, we have Bailey too, but Char Charlie is a rescue and he's been getting better. He, mm -hmm. he, he's, he had a difficult puppyhood. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm thankful that even though he's been barking in the background, I'm thankful that he and I are pals, uh, that he doesn't bite me on the butt <laughs> as much anymore. <laughs> uh, I am thankful for my conversation with you, Dennis. I, it's just so, uh, you know, there's certain things about life when you know you're alive and, and being alive is, is, is worth living, meeting a new friend. Uh, I, I'm not trying to say this to blow smoke up your butt. Like, I just, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really thankful for a conversation with an, a new friend. Yeah. Um, I, I, could, I could go on, but that, that's what comes to mind. Yeah, I, I think that those things, I'm starting to see the importance of, of talking about gratitude. And um, that's important. Because I think it, as you've said earlier, it grounds us. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I am thankful for a conversation. Um, and, and I think thankful just for even kind of the simple things of having cats that kind of do their thing um, in, in my life. And so that's important. And I, I, I think a good place to, to end this conversation for this time. This um, time. Yeah. I, Let's visit again, though. I, I'd love to hang out with you again. Yeah, because this was incredibly cool. Yeah. Um, if people want to follow you, um, any places on social media they should be looking for you? Sure. On all the socials, we're even on TikTok now. I might wow. even do the cha-cha once or twice. Is T-P-N-R, T-P-A-N-D-R pod, T-P-N-R pod. Uh, Twitter, TikTok, uh, Facebook, you can find us there. And we're, so depending on when this goes up, we're, our website is politicsandreligion.us, mm -hmm. but there's something wrong with the site for some reason. So it's going to politicsandreligion.podbean.com. But uh, if you just look up, talk politics and religion without killing each other, apostrophes after the N instead of the Gs, uh, 
talking politics and religion without killing each other that you can you can find us somewhere so all right well thank you again this was i i loved having this hour of conversation i really enjoyed getting to know you better dennis you asked such great questions it's going to get me thinking about this stuff you know for the rest of the day if not longer so really great questions thought-provoking so i appreciate it all right take care chatting with Corey. Um, I hope that you enjoyed it as well. Um, and I did put um, his, the link to his podcast in the show notes. Um, definitely give it a listen sometimes. He has a lot of very well-known people um, that he has on his podcast, and I think it's something that uh, you will enjoy. Um, also, make sure to follow us here. Uh, follow us on, we have a, our Facebook page, we have a Twitter feed, and YouTube. Uh, make sure that you follow us and subscribe. And those links are in the show notes. Um, you can also visit us at inroutpodcast.org. Uh, that's where we have, we try to sometimes have some additional material about podcast episodes. Um, and if you have a question or comment, feel free to drop me an email. Um, I really do want to hear what you all are thinking what questions you have, what comments, what things you, I can do better, what things are bugging you, um, please send an email to reverendpodcast at gmail.com. And I look forward to hearing those emails, to, to reading those emails. Um, also, it would be really important, and I would be incredibly, incredibly eternally thankful if you would leave a rating, a five-star rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Um, definitely you can do that on iTunes, um, Apple Podcasts. Um, I believe you can do it on Spotify and there are some others. Um, that really helps to um, for other people to find um, this podcast. And I think that this is a podcast that it's worth people hearing what it has to say. So if you can do that, it would be really helpful for me. Thank you. And then finally, I just want to let you know, um, please consider if you can, if you have a buck or two or three, making a donation. Uh, the donation helps to cover costs that um, come with trying to put this podcast together. Um, your donations really help to for me to continue to put out uh, good content. And I would love if um, you could do that. Uh, the link to donate is in the show notes. Well, that is it for this episode of En Route, the podcast that is at the intersection of Church and Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care, Godspeed, and see you soon.
There's an uneasiness growing within today's parents. Questions arise around what our kids are being taught, exposed to, and influenced by. Thankfully, a fully engaged, well-informed parent is a powerful thing. And that's why I support Answers in Genesis, and I would recommend you do as well, because it's important to remember that the battle for our kids' minds isn't one in the courts or the classrooms. It's one from the safety and comfort of our own home. So be the difference our kids need and visit www.answers.gift today.